0: This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. Advertisements for Amazon workers have been relentless recently and make sense on so many levels. First, the holidays are fast approaching and Amazon is going to need more warehouse workers and delivery drivers. At least... Temporarily, Sure, the ads selling jobs at Amazon say they pay well, are flexible, and will even pay all of your college expenses. But in reality, the pay is not great, the hours are long, and you have to be a full-time, not-temp worker to get any kind of benefits, which is not the vast majority of warehouse workers who work indirectly for Amazon through outside hiring agencies. Second, it also makes sense that Amazon is advertising that they're hiring because... Amazon churns through workers at an alarming rate, but that makes sense too as shifts are 10 to 12 hours long with the vast majority of that time spent on your feet and in competition with your fellow workers, making for a none too pleasant work environment. Then there's the constant surveillance by technology meant to control you every second of every minute of every hour of your shift. Finally, it makes sense that Amazon is advertising for workers and not for the products they sell because... They know they've already captured all the customers they'll ever need The problem is, to supply that demand, you need a lot, a lot of human capital And not everybody wants to work for Amazon But at the rate things are going, we'll all be working for Amazon one way or the other Many of you may have had, like me, a parent who worked in a factory I was told that my father worked in a factory so his children didn't have to The idea was one generation worked blue-collar jobs, so the next generation, through social mobility, could rise up to white-collar work, hopefully free from the factory floor. Today, however, there's a growing likelihood that you or your children will be right back in that factory, except this time it will be digitized. We'll find out what life in digital capitalism in the digital factory is like in just a few minutes when we speak with Alessandro Delfanti, author of... The Warehouse, Workers and Robots at Amazon Alessandro teaches digital Media at the University of Toronto and at The University of Toronto Mississauga He is also author of 2013 book Biohackers, The Politics of Open Science, which sounds fascinating You can follow Alessandro On Twitter at Adelfanti. You can find out more about Alessandro at his website Delfanti.org That's D-E-L-F-A-N T-i.org. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. It's Monday, so producing is Jess Lipka. Jess, anything new by you?
1: I'm good. Um, Drank a little too much this weekend, but had a good weekend. Yeah, just with just with friends. Good Halloween, though. It was a good Halloween.
0: Oh, did you go out for Halloween?
1: Um, just a small get-together with some friends, oh. um, which was good, yeah. yeah.
0: So uh, were you drinking at home, or were you on the road? <laughs>
1: um I was over at someone's house. Yeah. So yeah.
0: But still not going out to bars yet?
1: Um I've been I've been I've been here. I met Alex here a couple weeks ago, actually. Oh no kidding. Yeah, so I've been to Carrie's. Oh, awesome. Did you like it? Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Awesome, man. <laughs> that was overdue, long overdue.
0: Yeah. Uh right now my life's a train wreck. My home is completely torn apart right now. This afternoon we have an exterminator coming to spray. Our building, because our downstairs neighbors have seen cockroaches. Since we made the appointment a couple weeks ago, now we've seen at least three in our place, so they've made their way up to the third floor. But what all this means is we had to empty all the cupboards and cabinets and closets where they'll be spraying. That's not only a lot of work over the weekend, but now our home is nearly impassable with all of the stuff from our cupboards and cabinets and closets underfoot everywhere. It looks like we are in the process of moving in or moving out, which in turn is freaking out our cats. It doesn't help that I have anxiety about neatness and organization. In other words, my life is a living nightmare right now, stupid cockroaches. But more importantly than any of that, than my life being a freaking nightmare, Jess, what is this week's question from hell?
1: This week's... <laughs> This week's question from hell is awesome. Is okay then. <laughs> uh, okay then you come up with a good question from <laughs> <Yeah>. hell.
0: <laughs> Clearly Alex is very unhappy about the lack of responses to last week's question from hell. This week's question from hell is okay then you come up with a good question from hell. Uh that's a great one Alex. Uh this, the person with our favorite answer to this week's question Hell wins your choice of whatever This is hell merchandise you want The winter beanie, the trucker's cap, the coffee mug The t-shirts, the tote bags, the flash drive Any of our stuff that you can find, out, right, find right now At thisishell.com when you click on support Remember we are completely listener supported Without you we got nothing So thanks to all of you for your support We take no commercial money We take no grant money And we don't make enough money to afford to be a not-for-profit Again, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us at thisishellradio. You can email it to me at chuck at thisishell.com. But we must have your answer by the end of Wednesday's show when we are announcing this week's winner, following Jeff Georgian in the moment of truth. Jess will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell, following our conversation with Alessandro on Amazon. Again, the question from hell is, okay, then you come up with a good question from hell. <laughs> Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell, and Jess has this week's hangover cure.
1: This week's hangover cure is the most annoying hangover cure anyone could ever suggest.
0: If somebody had suggested this hangover cure to you this weekend, would have you been upset with them? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: Inquirer.net last week posted the story, How to Cure a Hangover by Christy Ajo but never suggest this cure to someone hungover because they will hate you. Christie condescendingly writes, The strategies to help decrease how strong your hangovers are not too difficult. Uh, Getting enough sleep, eating a healthy breakfast, drinking water, and not drinking too many sugary drinks are great ways to help cure a hangover. There is not a specific hangover cure or magic pill you can take to cure your hangover. Most doctors advise sleeping the hangover off. However, Many doctors advise that one way not to get a hangover is not to drink enough alcohol that you will get one. Pretty smart and straightforward, Christy writes. That makes this week's hangover cure the worst thing you can say to someone who is suffering, which is you shouldn't drink so much you get hungover. Oh, man. Christy
0: obviously has no friends left. Every one of her friends has left her because every time they get a hangover, you know that she's the teetotaler who maybe had one glass of wine that night and is saying, you know, maybe, maybe... You shouldn't have got... You shouldn't have drank so much that you got hungover. Oh, Christy. Please. Save your friendships by never making that suggestion to a hungover friend. Putting people before profits, which turns out to be a horrible business model this is hell and if you would like to contribute to our horrible business model that puts you before profits subscribe to our bonus weekly podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell which streams live at 10 a.m on friday and this podcast shortly after again at patreon.com slash this is hell on last week's patreon podcast we concluded a two-part monologue On what started as a primer on rural bias, as discussed by a rural farmer in the opinion column, Life Makes Sense in Country, Farm Folk Grounded Amid a Crazy World, which I found in the Bloomington, Illinois newspaper, The Pantograph. That piece explained why rural folk are the only truly grounded people, despite living in fear. That's verging on depression, according to the column's author. They're the only ones whose work causes sweat on the brow and who understand life and death, unlike us city types who apparently are a bunch of lazy nihilists. That's when I stumbled upon another goldmine of biases at a Facebook group page advocating for Airbnb without ever saying Airbnb called Marquee Township Short-Term Rental Ban. But in doing so, not only were rural biases revealed, so were biases of a conservative bent held by folks in small towns and suburbs. While rural rural folks may be afraid that Airbnb will bring convicts and pedophiles and their four-wheelers tearing up locals' peace and quiet, those from small towns and suburbs outside the area can't stand poor people who live in the township. It's a regular cornucopia of prejudice, and who knows? Maybe I inadvertently revealed some of my own as well We also shared an interview we did way back in April of 2007 With scholar scholar and anthropologist hmm, Why was that difficult to say? Anthropologist Mahmoud Mamdani Who had just posted the London Review of Books piece The Politics of Naming Genocide, Civil War, Insurgency. Mahmoud explained how despite similar players' actions creating similar outcomes in Iraq and Darfur at the same time One was being called a genocide while the other was falling under the categories of civil war and insurgency It's a conversation worth hearing again in light of the recent military coup in Sudan You may know Mahmoud from his classic good Muslim, bad Muslim, America, the Cold War, and the Roots of Terror, which was actually required reading in anthropology and sociology classes at Northwestern University for student producers on our show at the time we interviewed Mahmoud. But you can only hear our expose on rural bias, which also reveals conservative, small-town, suburban, and possibly even my own biases, as well as our interview with Mahmoud Bandani on how celebrities like George Clooney We're getting it all wrong on Darfur by subscribing to our weekly Friday Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash this is hell. Coming up, Amazon is relentless, so no wonder if you go to relentless.com, it redirects you to amazon.com. We will also have this week in Rotten History, some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is okay then, you come up with a good question from hell. And we'll be telling you what's happening on upcoming episodes of This Is Hell. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus. This is hell. Working for Amazon can be brutal. The hours are long. The job itself is incredibly precarious. While imposing downward pressure on wages as well as the work environment itself, let alone the damage done to the natural environment outside the warehouse walls, Here to help us have a better understanding of what work is like at Amazon, Alessandro Delfonti is author of the Warehouse Workers and Robots at Amazon. Welcome to This Is Hell, Alessandro.
2: Hey, hi, uh, thank you for having me. It's great to be to be here with you.
0: You know, uh, we've had a lot of discussions about Amazon, but none in the way that we're gonna be discussing it with you today. I just wanna make sure everybody understands that, even though there are a lot of books out, a lot of articles about Amazon, a lot of documentaries, this is one that is very different from others you will read. You mentioned how customers receive more mundane needs as demonstrated during the coronavirus pandemic. The consumption of food, clothing, or pharmaceuticals cannot be taken for granted. Our ability to consume is contingent and depends on complex global supply chains that can break down. Wherever our desire for consumption comes from, it must be fulfilled. How has the pandemic revealed any vulnerabilities, or has, actually, let me reword that, has the pandemic revealed any vulnerabilities of Amazon or has it reaffirmed and reinforced our dependence on Amazon?
2: Uh, I think it's done both things. In the sense that it it has revealed the the human labor behind um, us receiving a package on our on our doorsteps and the problems that uh, the kind of labor that workers perform at Amazon uh, you know represent uh, represent and then uh, uh, it's also made us more dependent from Amazon and similar companies especially Amazon uh, because of the you know their their business model was perfectly uh, ready for something like this more people. Ordering stuff online from home and not wanting to go to you know grocery stores or whatever other stores, um, so I think it's it's been both a boost for their business, but also uh, in a sense a boost for their for their for their poor public image. And so when I want to say it's it's done both revealing that what what happens inside those places and also but also making those places more important for us.
0: Um, so it benefits from a, a period of crisis that would suggest that in the future with more and more uh, you know effects from climate change that. Amazon will continue to benefit from crisis. Why is it seemingly invulnerable to crisis?
2: Um, I'm not sure it's invulnerable, so we'll see uh, on the long run what, what, what happens. But certainly it has profited from, uh, from crisis in the past, and it may do so in the future. So I don't know if climate change is going gonna, is gonna to favor Amazon, to be honest, but it's certainly a possibility. Um, um, certainly it has um, emerged from the dot-com uh, bubble um, in the in the late 2000s, where most other e-commerce companies went bust, while Amazon had just gotten enough money to float uh, above the crisis and then uh, sort of survive and incorporate some of the, the business models that other companies were developing before that, that bubble burst. Um, so certainly there are precedents in terms of Amazon exploiting crisis or being more successful because of crisis. Uh, Certainly, the, 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 the COVID-19 uh, pandemic has uh, accelerated their ability to reach more markets and to sell more stuff and to grow as a company. So they have definitely profited from this, from this crisis a lot. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. We can imagine crime, climate change uh, helping Amazon in a sense. We can also imagine climate change disrupting uh, their operations or uh, you know, political upheavals coming, you know, generated by climate change uh, also harming this company. Um, so I really can't predict what's going to happen in the future. But certainly they've been been—they've they've demonstrated they can actually profit com- from crisis. They've done that in the past for sure.
0: Why did they survive the tech bubble bust of the 2000s? Because I remember at the time talking to friends of mine who were in tech.
2: Or, and- uh, just the right size. And they just collected enough money from investors to be able to um, uh, not go bankrupt while other companies that were basically based on the same business model the idea of like selling stuff online were less successful financially um, so while Amazon was still very small of course uh, during, during those days it, it managed to um, capitalize on the crisis in terms of becoming one of the main like finding, finding itself being one of the main actors uh, when other competitors had, had gone out of business so certainly there, there was that for sure
0: You also write that overnight Amazon workers became essential In March 2020 at the height of the first wave of the pandemic In COVID-19 ridden northern Italy A courier shot a cell phone video while delivering for Amazon It quickly went viral over messaging app WhatsApp Amazon doesn't stop, the worker can be heard saying Through his medical grade face mask Don't worry, you'll receive your damn Hello Kitty phone cover on time F you why do we not give an F about those who we call essential workers during the pandemic? Why didn't the public start only purchasing what was
2: essential? Yeah. Wow. That's a big question. I don't think I have an answer for that. I think we all found out all of a sudden there cert- that certain workers that we hadn't really paid much attention to, um, you know, all of a sudden were, were, were essential. We, our lives, our lives depended on them. And Amazon certainly wasn't the, the only, um, um, company or, or, or e-commerce was not the only industry, certainly that that uh, kind of like uh, had this moment of revelation. Uh, but because of the size of this company and because of the how important it became in terms of everyday consumption, uh, um, I think there is something specific there in terms of how all of like overnight, literally millions of workers across the world found out that they had to work in unsafe conditions uh, and their work was. Uh, more important than other people's work, so they could not shut down. For instance, they could not shut down the workplaces. Um, so the 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 sentence you the quote you read uh, is one of the you know it's 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 a funny one. It's a it's a it's one from a person who was mad because they they had to uh, you know uh, uh, drive around and deliver packages while the situation was still super unclear. There was this new this new disease. Uh, this new risk that nobody really knows uh, about, and, and these people could not uh, stop working, uh, quite the opposite, and, and in some cases for uh, uh, you know, very silly forms of consumption. So it was definitely, Amazon was never actually limited to uh, um, uh, crucial stuff we need for our survival. So the, the allocated phone cover has always been part of, of, the, of the company business model, uh, even during the pandemic.
0: You know, this book is really fascinating. One of the things about it is how it's it's like the Amazon model doesn't seem like it would work. You point out that uh, in uh, Piacenza, the town where you are from, Amazon became a heavy presence before the area was even an eligible destination for delivery. Boxes from MXP5, that's the uh, fulfillment center there, went out to the more modern and busier metropolis of Milan while we got the jobs, the downward wages and working conditions and the environmental degradation. How important do you think that the downward pressure on wages and working conditions and environmental degradation, how important do you think that is to Amazon's profits and success? Is that why Amazon is profitable?
2: Um, definitely. So uh, Amazon is successful because it can. It, it, their, their business model is pretty it's pretty simple in a sense. You order something online; they'll deliver it to you. Um, so the way uh, they remain, um, uh, you know, above their competitors is by making their process more efficient and their prices lower. And in order to do so, you have to to unload some of this pressure onto the workers and or the environment. So certainly, there are external external effects in terms of environmental degradation, uh, but also there has, there, are, there are effects uh, uh, in terms of the workforce. So. Um for instance, we know that Amazon pays lower salaries than the average in the warehousing industry. Um so even though they may pay above minimum wage in some, you know, in, in some in some areas in the US, for instance, they try to do whatever they can to, to compress uh, uh wages so they can actually uh uh you know sell stuff to, at a lower par- at a lower price. Uh there is also something about positioning warehouses in places where uh they find both um um uh, geographical, or uh, i want to say vantage advantages in terms of the you know the, the position of a warehouse so it has to be in the at the outsk- at the outskirts of ma- major metropolitan centers so it can serve the urban uh, wealthier market and at the same time find uh, the workforce uh, the, like masses of workers at the periphery of our of our urban centers um, so there is there is something about unloading this Pressure on wage and these environmental degradation onto the peripheries, onto the suburb onto suburban, uh, onto, onto our suburban world, uh, vis-à-vis the consumption which tends to happen, you know, downtown in in urban centers. Uh, so there is something about the geography of Amazon that kind of reproduces some of the injustices uh, that shape our cities and our and our uh, our countries.
0: And you point out that the first strike that happened at Amazon, you write, on November 24, 2017, hundreds of MXP5, that's the codename of the facility near your hometown, where those workers went on strike. Unions had entered the company just a few months earlier. So why there? Why did the first ever strike against Amazon happen at the MXP5 warehouse in Castel San Giovanni in Italy's Po Valley?
2: Uh, that was, uh, yeah, that was the first uh, strike uh, in Italy, one of the first strikes, I think, that, that attracted global attention from the media. Uh, I, there, there had been, uh, you know, other f- strikes and other forms of worker action in other places before, uh, especially, I think, in Germany. Um, so it wasn't the first one, uh, you know, uh, in, a- in absolute terms. So it certainly was, was the one that made it, made it w- one of the early, early strikes that made a splash uh, on global media even. Um so all of a sudden you are in this like place in the middle of nowhere uh, in in Italy like you know very you know sort of a provincial town uh, in the middle of nowhere and you have the Washington post, which by the way is owned by jeff by jeff Bezos um, um coming to town to interview union union organizers and stuff like that so it, it had a it had a major um, uh, visibility on the media um, I think there were several reasons for that strike and the, these are common reasons you will you will Uh, hear about in other instances of workers mobilizing at Amazon warehouses, uh, especially rhythms of work, uh, flexibility, uh, control over shifts. Um, So I think the most most important thing for for those workers at that point was, and still is in many cases, was trying to control the pressure coming from this just-in-time business model where someone can order something now and they want it delivered in 24 hours, 12 hours, two hours. So the increasingly uh, unreasonable delivery times that Amazon promises to us are unloaded on the shoulders of workers, which means more hours, more flexibility, more overtime, more night shifts, more unpredictability. Maybe they'll tell, you, they'll tell me 10 minutes before my, my, my shift is over that I have to stay for three more hours. Or maybe they'll tell me you know, this morning that I have a night shift tonight. So, I think the first strike was especially focused on uh, improving workers' lives in terms of controlling this in, this incredible flexibility they had to deal with.
0: Why ten to twelve hour shifts? Why not eight hour shifts? I, I, don't, I never really understood that.
2: Um, oh that, that really that really depends on on the the country and the labor or the state in the case of, of the u s uh, and the labor laws so whatever whatever labor laws allow Amazon to do. Uh in Italy, for instance, the, the regular shift is eight hours, if not seven hours. So that, that really depends on, on where on the, the, the country especially that we're we're talking about. Um I think there is something about more than the length of the of the shifts, there is something about the again the flexibility needed from workers. So maybe the shift may be eight hours, but then um every other day they may ask you to stay for another couple of hours with no um uh without telling you in advance. Uh, so I think there is something about them needing to change the way in which the workforce operates, the, num- the sheer number of workers they have in a certain location, depending on orders. So they have this incredible need for flexibility, which is built upon forcing workers to be flexible.
0: You also t- write about how work at Amazon is precarious and unstable. But that's something I, I, another thing I haven't understood about Amazon. If work at Amazon is precarious and unstable, then how can it be efficient? And at the same time, their workers are in a position that is precarious and unstable.
2: Yeah, well, it, it it is it is precarious and unstable in the sense that Amazon relies on a on a on a workforce composed by uh, I want to say give or take half full time workers they hire directly and half uh, workers subcontracted from a from a temp agency. So especially the second half of the workforce is is incredibly precarious. They may have contracts that you know are, are like weeks long. Uh, or not even that. Um, uh, we also know that the turnover is very, very, very high. So uh, there are studies from the from the US that say that um, certain Amazon warehouses have a 200% turnover rate. So that means that each position uh, is held by three people in a year on average. So each worker is replaced twice. Um, uh, per year on average. So that's an incredible turnover rate. And what allows Amazon to thrive and, and be sufficient regardless of this turnover rate is its technological ability to organize labor through um, algorithms, uh, specifically. So um, the most important thing being that uh, workers can learn to operate in, a, in an Amazon warehouse in. Minutes literally, uh, as long as you have you know, computer literacy, you can oper- you can operate like basic uh, digital devices. Uh, you can be tr- you can be thrown in and start and you know be- become operative in-, in minutes, if not or, or hours uh, uh, tops. So uh, this is basically mostly because the knowledge about where the stuff is and where the stuff needs to go in the warehouse does not reside with workers. So workers don't have to learn the organization of the inventory in the warehouse. All that is outsourced to uh, computer programs. So that, that knowledge resides on a database that Amazon owns and controls. And the algorithms that Amazon uses to organize labor will tell a worker through, their, through the device they use to work, go to floor, second floor, ALX, uh, you know, uh, uh, box 95, and pick. Uh, retrieve this. I don't even know this. Uh, um, my USB microphone that Alessandro has ordered here. So this ability to organize labor technologically is what makes Amazon um, that efficient, I want to say, regardless of the turnover. Or if you want, want, we can even, we can even flip that and, and and say that because of this technological ability, Amazon likes turnover and fosters turnover. So it wants its workers to be more precarious because it knows that uh, it can control the labor process regardless of that. Um, so having more precarious workers means having less union presence, um, having less problems with workers who slow down at a certain point in their career, um, having less prob- fewer problems with workers who uh, decide not to buy into corporate culture anymore. Um, so I think there is something about pre- precarity being part of the way of the reasons why amazon is so efficient and technology is a key part of this
0: so how much is the is the amazon model essentially a focus on undermining labor organizing
2: um definitely amazon strives to be union free wherever they operate um so i mean it just just think about seattle seattle is one of those we, i think we can safely say that seattle is one of the last strongholds of the union movement to the States, or, one, one, or at least one of the strongholds of the union, of the union movement in the, in, the, in the States. And still, the thousands of workers Amazon has there, in you know because of their, its headquarters are in Seattle, uh, um, are not unionized. So there is zero union presence, even in Seattle, let alone the remaining locations in, in the States. So US, Canada, no union presence. Uh, Europe is a different game, because labor laws are uh, are less um, uh, uh, are, are, not, are not designed exactly to prevent union presence as they are in the states so it 's actually much easier to unionize a workplace in in, in most countries in europe so th- there is a union presence definitely in europe uh, but still amazon strives even in europe to uh, uh, to try and limit uh worker power in its workplaces so i think definitely one of the um Uh, of the factors that Amazon keeps into account in terms of continuing being efficient and competitive is its ability to compress uh, labor power and, and keeping it in its place.
0: And you describe it as 24 seven, always on crunch time, obsessed burnout prone culture. How can that always on crunch time, obsessed burnout prone culture? How can that be sustainable? Or is that the whole point? It's meant to not be sustainable.
2: Um, it doesn't have to be sustainable because Amazon can rely on turnover. Amazon can, as as long as, as there is uh, what what Marx called the reserve army of like people looking for a job and being you know being being willing to to take to take like uh, that kind of job, Amazon will be okay with that because its its ability its technological ability to inject new workers onto the workforce and uh, you know uh, uh, work them into the warehouse and put them to work almost immediately. Um, uh, that will. Um, allow them to be successful regardless of turnover so i I, th- I think amazon is okay with that because they know they can replace workers who, who who are burnt out who quit uh who slow down or who need to be kicked out because they, they slow they slow down too much
0: and you mentioned the invisibility of amazon workers and amazon work to the outside community and to amazon's customers But you also mentioned that, quote, the technologies, management techniques and cultural elements that impose productivity onto startup coders in Silicon Valley campuses are increasingly applied to more and more sectors of the workforce. So uh, how aware or unaware are coders uh, of the consequences of their coding on Amazon workers?
2: Um, Oh, I I think because, uh, because especially the pandemic, but even before the pandemic uh, the problem with, with Amazon work has been made more and more public. So I think theres there's been more conversations in terms of like in, in different sectors of the workforce. Uh, so I think for for the, you know, engineers and coders are more aware of what happens in those places. There has also been a wave of, um, I want to say radicalization or, uh, oh my God, this is not the word you really would use in English with this meaning maybe, but uh, politicization um, of uh, the white collar uh, engineers in Silicon Valley slash other places like Seattle so I think there is something about uh, new new movements within the workforce emerging even within the engineers and, and the, the other uh, you know workers uh, working at the headquarters in Seattle so I think there are forms of interclass solidarity if you want to put it that way so there is there is more uh consciousness that something is going on in those places, but there is also more direct connections among these two chunks of the workforce, engineers and, and warehouse workers, because of these changing politics of labor, which have been uh, influencing the way in which even engineers uh, uh, and in the last couple of years, we've seen, uh, actual direct political collaboration between warehouse workers and, and engineers in Seattle, which is very interesting.
0: And you also point out that amongst all of the different services that Amazon has, Amazon Web Services is the real money maker. Each dollar Amazon spends operating AWS generates 10 times more profit than a dollar spent on its other ventures. That is to say, while the fulfillment center and services like Prime Video turn over more money than Amazon Web Services, those services are not always profitable. How much does aws depend upon workers is it profitable because it does not need as much human labor as warehouse work
2: um i i think it is profitable because it provides the infrastructure like a a major chunk of the infrastructure that allows the internet to exist in the first place so it is the main provider of web services in the world Uh, so i think there is something about uh, Amazon having built a an infrastructural powerhouse upon which many other companies depend. So Uber runs on Amazon services, uh, servers, sorry. Uh, just an example. Um, I think Airbnb too. They it, you know it's it's a, it's a it's a different platform, it's a different company, uh, but it it relies on Amazon web services uh, for uh, servers for so for the web for the web space for the algorithms they, they run in you know in order to uh, to uh, run their operations. Uh, so there is something there about the position of that uh, uh, company, AWS, that that you know, sorry, that service uh, in terms of, again, providing the infrastructure for the web. That's a very valuable position. Uh, there is human labor going into that. There is the, the, the human labor, of course, of programmers and coders and engineers who, who, who design uh, those services and make them run. Uh, there is also uh, the, the, the labor of other kinds of warehouse workers, so those who manage... Uh, uh, the, the 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 so-called server farms, so these warehouses in the middle of nowhere where the servers uh, are actually placed. Uh, so it's not as labor-intensive, of course, as other you know as the, the fulfillment centers where the stuff is the, the you know the commodities are stored. Um, so you, you may have just a handful of, of warehouse workers there, but it's 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 a striking similarity. There is other warehouses with other warehouse workers, which is still run by Amazon, but they perform a very different job, which is maintaining the servers for AWS.
0: So when we see these ads on TV for jobs, uh, when it comes to jobs at Amazon, we see these advertisements for it. Uh, are those jobs that they're talking about, are they you know full time amazon jobs part time amazon jobs cuz as you point out in your book temporary workers make up the the majority of uh, warehouse workers especially when it comes to holiday season so if you right now were going to go get a job at amazon what's the likelihood that you would actually be employed by amazon and not some hiring agency
2: um i i think it because now they're, they're growing the workforce again for for the holiday season so i think it's it would be most you know it would be it would be quite likely that you would be hired uh through a temp agency with a with a short time contract uh if unless it's a new warehouse so they, imagine if they just open a fulfillment center near chicago then they also need the full-time staff so maybe they'll, they'll be hiring full-timers right away but in many jurisdictions what they do is um uh, hire these flexible workforce, pretty much like double the size of the workforce in a given fulfillment center for the holiday season, and then uh, uh, would not fire. So people will, uh, will basically be, be, uh, um, uh, be left at home. Um, so I think working through a temp agency is also one of the uh, paths in terms of getting a full-time contract later on. So for many for many temp workers that was the hope, um, you know, I'll, I'm, maybe I'm gonna do I'm gonna do I'm gonna work. It's gonna be seasonal work initially, but hopefully they will actually hire me if, uh, with a full time contract, uh, which is what happens in certain cases, of course. Um,
0: but how likely is that?
2: <clears throat> oh well, that really depends on on whether the warehouse is expanding. So if it's a new fulfillment center, if if the market is expanding, then maybe they'll actually uh, hire quite quite a few of those workers onto the more stable workforce. Uh, uh, like in my hometown in Piacenza, where the warehouse has been there for quite a while, and new warehouses are opening in the country. Uh, I've been told by workers that the, the the new the new workers coming in as uh, you know through temp agencies don't even hope anymore. There's going to be a full time job at the end of the line because it's at this point the the the, 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 the full time workforce is pretty stable. Um, so it's it's more about dealing with turnover. Those people also quit. Uh, But it's not about hiring masses of new people through that sort of path.
0: We are speaking with Alessandro Delfonti. He is author of The Warehouse, Workers and Robots at Amazon. You can follow Alessandro on Twitter at Adelfonti and find out more about Alessandro at his website, Delfonti.org. You point out that Bezos himself has acknowledged repeatedly that, quote, it's not easy to work here, emphasizing that sacrifice is part of what's requested of Amazon employees, from the warehouse all the way up to the shiny executive offices in Seattle. So, our employees were you dire- directly asked to sacrifice for Amazon? Do, do they do do workers not work but sacrifice? And if so, why are they told they should sacrifice for Amazon?
2: <laughs> so, I, I think there is definitely a a sort of like the, the corporate culture uh, influenced by you know created by Jeff Bezos is one of sacrifice and burnout, and uh, it's famously even even you know executives would be. Yelled at and fired in the elevator in front of everyone else uh, by by Bezos, so there is something about this person and many other um you know um, um, you know figures like him in 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 contemporary capitalism being uh obsessed with uh, commanding the workforce and, and you know being able to dispose of the of the, of the workers if they want to um, so, in, t- in terms of warehouse work, though, that's different. You, there is no Jeff Bezos yelling at you, but definitely there is uh, a culture of sacrifice in the sense that uh, workers are told that they do this for the customers. So, stuff like, you know, okay, we've 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 we shipped ten thousand packages in our shift. That means that thousands of kids are going to be happy tomorrow because it's you know I don't know Christmas, for instance. Um, so there's definitely something about moralizing their work in terms of providing this form of just in time consumption to the customers uh, so i'm'm I'm, I'm, I think the the company tries to, to to portray that as being the main goal rather than wealth per se or the growth of the company or anything inherent to the company itself it's more about the customers um so that's something that definitely uh, warehouse workers hear all the time. We have to do this because consumers depend on us um so, you'll hear all sorts of stories in terms of how uh, management moralizes uh, warehouse work because of that connection with consumption.
0: On that moralization, you even point out that the company cultivates a workplace culture aimed at convincing workers that warehouse work is special and fun. And you get that feeling from the advertisements we're seeing in the States right now when it comes to Amazon advertising for jobs. You continue that a combination that can be settling. And this is just the warm-up. Amazon has plans for a future fulfillment center that is even more technology-intensive, where its domination over the workforce is even stricter, and the labor process is increasingly automated. So- When you were working there, I mean, you point out that uh, employer turnover is high by design as the warehouse quickly discards and replaces workers worn out by the dictated pace. So how unsettling was the message that work is fun when it's grueling and low paid?
2: Uh, Yeah. So sorry, just to clarify, I haven't worked at, I didn't work at Amazon myself um, I've been in those places several times. I've interviewed many workers. I've gone through the selection process a couple of times, a couple of times, but I've never actually worked myself. I knew you went through the I'm process. The
0: I knew you went through the uh, employment but, process, so I thought that you had been hired as well. So my mistake.
2: Oh nope. Oh ever mind. Um uh so uh it, it can be unsettling because of this contrast, like you said, between the the conditions of work, the rhythms, uh the, the the punishments that you can encounter in terms of being being uh, you know told you're not doing well enough you're not fast enough or even you know not, you know your contract not being renewed if you if you if, if you work through a temp agency and on the other on the other hand this more flashier this flashier image that Amazon tries to portray in terms of what what being an Amazon warehouse worker means in the first place so they're, they're one of the main slogans they have is this work hard Uh, have fun, make history. And you'll see it painted on the walls of of any Amazon fulfillment center, like over and over again, all over the place. It's not the first, it's certainly, it tends to be the first thing you see when you walk into one. Um, So the the work hard part of the equation is very clear. Uh, They have to work hard. The have fun part of the equation is something more unexpected if you wish. Um, So workers don't know necessarily when when they enter those places that that's gonna be the deal. That they have to they have to they have to have fun so there is definitely something coming from it's it's not unique to amazon this is like basic corporate culture in a sense but there is something about trying to uh uh create the feeling of a community do fun activities together ranging from you know stretching in the morning to pizza parties by night uh there is something about trying to convince people that um, that because of the technologically advanced Form of labor that happens in those places, uh, Amazon is cooler than other companies. So it's a privilege to work at Amazon. You know, vis-a-vis working at any other uh, you know companies that company deals with warehousing. Um, so that's very interesting because they project onto warehouse workers this aura of cool that comes from I think comes from like Silicon Valley big tech um, sort of culture. Um, certainly works for engineers who are hired. Um, you know at 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 google and work at the googleplex google's headquarters where you have all sort of uh, you know toys and it's 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 the 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 your workplace is designed to look as a as a as a playground um so i think we've all seen images of like these you know big tech companies trying to to make the workplace appear cool to engineers so they can actually recruit uh people more easily so the warehouse uh, amazon warehouses in a sense try to mimic that a little bit um so you'll have games. You'll have chocolate days where everyone is given free, whatever, quality chocolate. Uh, uh, You'll have, again, group activities, community activities. So uh, I think the the warehouse is also designed to look as a playground and that fosters this myth of Amazon being more fun, more playful, and cooler uh, to work at.
0: So a culture of cool they're trying to sell, and you point out when we think of work under digital capitalism, we tend to imagine urban, hyperconnected labor, regardless of whether it's in its coders in San Francisco, San Francisco food delivery couriers in Berlin, or social media content moderators in Delhi. Piacenza is hardly on the map, but it is an example of the suburban periphery where a new landscape of work is taking shape. This has been in development for a while now. How has Amazon's digital capitalism? Changed not only the work landscape in Piacenza, but also the environmental and cultural landscape. This is an area that used to be a hub for agriculture, and now it's just a it's a hub for logistics. Yeah. So, how does it change the culture in your hometown?
2: Yeah, that's it's not just Amazon. Um, so, my home Piacenza, my hometown, as well as many other places around the world, especially again like ar- around major metropolitan centers, have been turned into into uh, warehousing logistics hubs. Um, so Amazon is one of the players in that place. So you'll see the same uh, uh, sort of uh, you know landscaper produced in other places. Uh, so Joliet around Chicago or uh, the you know uh, the um, uh, Mississauga near 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 Toronto. Um, so you you'll see you'll see places in the, at the periphery of major metropolitan centers which have become logistics hubs. Um, so th- it's the same for my hometown. So I think there is something about like. Political decisions made to uh, taken in order to attract um, um, new warehouses, new players in the in the in the the sector, and that has had major repercussions in terms of changing the composition of the workforce in the area. So all of a sudden, warehousing logistics become uh, have become one of the main industries there. So we're talking about like tens of thousands, thousands of people working in the industry in a province that's pretty small. Uh, So it's become a sensible. uh, industry there, uh, there is something about attracting migrant labor. Um, so lots of these jobs are taken up by uh, uh, migrant workers uh, who tend to be racialized, uh, who tend to be newcomers uh, to to uh, the country. Uh, so there's something about raising uh, the number of my mi- of, of uh, uh, migrant migrant the migrant population in a certain area. Um, so the province of the has become one of the uh, areas in Italy with the highest uh, percentage of uh, uh, foreign citizens, I think. Um, so there is something about that for sure. Uh, it's also changed the politics of the place. So because of the of the heavy, massive presence of warehouses, because of the presence of this new uh, uh, massive migrant workforce there has been uh, new political actors popping up. So new uh, unions focusing specifically on, on warehousing and being built and organized by migrant workers, which has been pretty exciting. Um, So I think there is economic changes, there is political changes, there is uh, even demographic changes uh, that all go together uh, with the the arrival of um, Amazon and other similar companies uh, in a certain area.
0: So Amazon provides precarious work and eventually needs more workers than the local population can supply, in the case of what's happening in the Po Valley, bringing in migrant workers, as you were just saying, who are in turn blamed for the precarious lives of white Amazon workers. How how, how much of an a- obstacle is that racial dynamic to labor organizing?
2: Um, well, that depends. I think I think some of the mainstream traditional unions have had a, a hard time organizing precarious workers in the first place, even more so migrant precarious workers. Um, um, so they're, they're trying, they're, do, they're, doing, they're doing their best. In some cases, they're successful. But then on the other hand, you have the emergence of new uh, worker organizations, which, like I said, are built by migrant workers themselves. Uh, so I think there is something very interesting, especially in, my prov- in, in Piacenza, my province, where I think it, it, you, you could say this for many other areas in the, areas in the world, uh, a very interesting phenomenon where Instead of uh, you know, stealing, stealing your jobs, uh, stealing the jobs of like, the, the old stock white Italian workers, uh, these workers are raising the bar for workers' rights for everyone, even for the white workers who had forgotten how to struggle and strike and win uh, and would be willing to accept any, any conditions. Um, so I think the, the, the picture is flipped in a sense. So these racialized migrant workers are actually helping even the more traditional uh, working class white workers to actually get better rights and better working conditions. So that's, that's very interesting to me. Um, it's, it's not like the left necessarily acknowledges this, the, the more institutional um, kind, of, kind of part of the left, but it's certainly a dynamic that many people have pointed out. And you also mentioned
0: that besides the jobs, trucks and concrete, what Amazon brought to Piacenza and where it brings it to when it comes to any town uh, and to the dozens of other suburban areas which host its warehouses is a myth, a promise of modernization, economic development and even individual emancipation that stems from the disruptive nature of a company heavily based on the application of new technology to both consumption and work. It is a promise that assumes that the society in question is willing to entrust such ambitions to the gigantic multinational corporations that design, implement, and Ah, possess technology." So why is being disruptive seen as a good thing when disruption has made fortunes for owners and investors but led to precarity for workers who far outnumber owners and investors?
2: Yeah, I I think there is so, there is something like I said about this aura of myth coming from technologically advanced production. This is something that uh, is I want we, we we we're witnessing this happening with digital capitalism and like the you know the 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 offerings of digital capitalism in terms of workplace culture or uh, or these dreams of modernization. Uh, but it's, this is not necessarily new. So sociologists, for instance, like analyzing industrial capitalism in the sixties, have pointed out similar phenomena where. Uh, you know, working at Fiat to 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 stay with an Italian example, or or Ford to to for, to, use, to use to use an American example, uh, uh, was something interesting not only because of the material benefits, but also because of the you know workers' ability to uh, participate in a new form of industry in that, that that's more modern, more contemporary, uh, growing, changing quickly, uh, improving quickly. So there was a promise there in terms of the participation to technological advanced production that's been uh, there for, with, for the introduction of um, uh, industrial capitalism and some, some of the technological changes brought, by, br- br- brought in by industrial capitalism. We're seeing now the same thing happening with digital capitalism. Uh, th- the problem is that myths are not something people just blindly believe in. Um, so I think these myths that are, that are put forward by corporations are also challenged by because of these newly acquired visibility in terms of the poor conditions of work uh, in, in those warehouses that we've seen in the last, especially two three years, uh, emerge in the press, in the public discourse, and blah blah blah. Um, so I think there is there is a there is a, there is a clash between this myth uh, uh, pushed by by by, by corporations. Uh, and the material conditions on the ground, but there is also a clash between this myth and the way in which uh, uh, work in those places is actually actually seen in the public sphere and debated in the public sphere. So I think that they they, they start having a hard time pushing that that ideology uh, onto us.
0: You also mentioned that customers provide labor, too, for Amazon, albeit unpaid, by allowing the company to use the data it generates by monitoring their behavior. For instance, when Alexa records their conversations or when uh, they review products on Amazon.com or in Italy, Amazon.it. How much does Amazon depend on the free labor of customers for their, their success?
2: Um, I think it's an important part of what they do, and this is this is in this sense Amazon is no different from like other big tech corporations, especially you know social media um, um, services, Google, and, and all, all of them. So there is, there is I think we all know very well at this point that whatever we do um, online or through our smartphones uh, is monitored data are extracted and then crunched by algorithms. And they, they are used to, at the very least, to improve the service day, that, 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 that a company provides to us. Um, so certainly, pe- people have argued that this, this should be see as, seen as unpaid labor we perform for the company, uh, which helps uh, uh, sharpen their, their technology, which, which helps improve the service they provide. Uh, so Amazon is no different there, in a sense. So whatever you do on Amazon, be it Talk, talk to your Alexa, or order something online, uh, or use use a website that that they uh, host will provide data that's valuable and that they would use to improve their service and uh, services and thus make more money. So you you could characterize that as as a form of unpaid labor that we all provide to big tech companies for sure.
0: But that's kind of you know covert data mining. To you, what explains why consumers? so often give away their labor for free? For instance, here in the States, I don't know if this is, well, you've seen it probably in Canada, uh, the line for the self-checkout at stores is often the longest line. Why are consumers not only willing to give their labor away for free, but also take paying jobs away from people who need them?
2: Yeah, I'm not sure that consumers want to do that. I think foster people's participation. so I don't think it's, it's a matter of like us wanting to, to use a self-checkout, uh, to use self-checkout as consumers uh, or, to, or, or wanting our data to be uh, captured by Facebook so they can actually sell us better advertisements or something like that. It's that these technologies, these services are designed so that they attract people's participation and they profit from it. Um, so I don't think anyone online at uh, the self-checkout is consciously thinking, oh, I want to I I try and contribute to getting rid of one job at this uh, supermarket, right? That's not the point. I think there is something about uh, uh, employers deploying those technologies so that consumers help them get rid of some of the workers. Um, it's not our choice as consumers.
0: So why don't we connect those actions to those consequences?
2: huh you need a you you need a psychologist here i think but I think <laughs> the, the 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 power of consumption in our culture is so high that we tend to uh give it primacy over um over any thought we give about labor um and this has been a problem for decades uh and like um, other people have thought about that i am am sure I'm, I'm in a position to give you a smart uh answer here but certainly it's it's a problem like you're thinking you can solve stuff by changing your consumption patterns. this has been challenged by uh Lots of people, you know, regardless of whether this is, this is about worker rights um, or, uh, you know, uh, exploitation of natural resources or climate change, our individual consumption patterns are not the point. The point is a systemic change. Uh, so I think this is something bigger than Amazon and bigger than me, for sure.
0: See, we didn't need a psychologist. That was a fantastic answer. <laughs> okay. So you, you write the idea of redemption through work is nothing new. On the contrary, it is a damnation. Common to modern society. What do you mean by the idea of redemption through work being a damnation, an eternal hellish punishment?
2: Oh my God! this This is my this is my background as uh, someone coming from sort of the, the autonomist uh, crowd in Italy, where where there's a, this, this this tradition of like thinking that maybe work shouldn't be that central in our lives. So maybe it should be their, its presence in our lives should be limited. Um, so I think it comes from you know my my you know in a sense my own. Um, sort of uh, uh, ideas about what's important in, in someone's life um, so uh, I think Amazon is one of the examples of on, on the contrary of the expansion of work to new spheres so uh, so for instance like amazon workers in a, Amazon workers inability to uh, say no to overtime um, or Amazon workers uh, taking home uh, bringing home some of the cultural um, elements they encounter in the warehouse. So, for instance, using Amazon's slogans uh, at home with their kids because that's the way they are uh, they're 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 familiarized with doing stuff in the warehouse t- ten or twelve hours a day. Um, so, I think there is something about certainly about Amazon expanding the reach of work onto uh, our, our lives more in general, and that's something I, I, I don't necessarily like. Uh, and also because of this idea that. I think Amazon pushes like you can if you get a job at Amazon, it's, your life is gonna is gonna improve because uh, it's a because of this promise of modernization, dealing with high tech, um, organization of labor, um, this promise of redemption. You know you can um, use this job to actually uh, progress in life, build a career for yourself, all that stuff um, tends to come tends to be compressed in, in the sphere of labor, and I think there is so much more in our lives that. Is not captured by that sphere, um, so that's uh, I think why I wrote that sentence.
0: So, is if, if Amazon is so exploitative and controlling of their workers, could its business model survive labor organizing or unionization? How bad would labor organizing be for Amazon's bottom line? Could it even could it even survive labor organizing?
2: I'm I'm, I'm sure it can survive labor organizing. I mean, the profits they're making are so high they could basically give tens of thousands, tens of thousands of dollars to each and every Amazon workers per year on top of what they're already making and not, nothing will happen to their bottom line. So there is something about the sheer amount of money they make that would allow them to do whatever they want. So they could easily pay twice as much. Um, no, no, I don't think it would be a problem there. Then in terms of remaining competitive, that's a different game maybe. So maybe there is, the, you know, there is something about uh, them needing to to compress uh, uh, salaries and needing to improve technology because, the edge they have is very minimal, um, you know, vis-a-vis their competitors. So everyone is playing catch-up game with Amazon. So you, you know, other companies are trying to do to be more efficient, faster, uh, smarter. So in a sense, it's it's an evolving market. So they they sh- should need to be to be careful there. But I'm not sure that unionization will kill them. Uh, so this is something we've seen over all, you know, over and over again in the history of capitalism. Um, companies may start like this, high turnover, churning out people. Um, Unsafe labor, uh, but then once uh, workplaces are unionized and industries are unionized, what happens is that uh, there is a new there is a new um, agreement between labor and capital, and maybe salaries goes up, go up a little bit, and technology is used in a in a, in a slightly different way, and everyone is happy. So um, I I don't think unionization will kill Amazon. Unionization may normalize Amazon. Unionization may uh, change some of the most um, um, Uh, you know, like outstanding, uh, outstandingly bad features of what what it means to work for them. Um, So this is something we've seen uh, in Amazon warehouses that have been unionized. A little bit bit of control over work rhythms, slightly higher salaries, maybe, uh, maybe less flexibility. So unions have like very definite goals. And I don't think they'll kill Amazon. Maybe they'll make it a better place.
0: Factory workers 100 years ago, 50 years ago, likely even today, work hard so their kids don't have to work in factories. At least that's how it was in my family and where I grew up in Detroit. So uh, you write how Amazon was based on the over 100-year-old idea of the mail order catalog. To what extent is Amazon nothing really new or innovative? It's just a continuation of factory work, only digitized and more automated. Is it the same capitalism, only with a different technology?
1: Um,
2: I think I think you could say, and pe- pe- people are saying that that digital capitalism is a continuation of industrial capitalism. So it's it's a it's it's new technologies that are built on top of pre-existing technologies that have been used by industrial capitalism for a century and a half. Um, so, so I think you could, you could certainly say that. I think it's what's interesting is that some of these technologies or techniques. Uh, it's not just about like you know material technologies like computers. It's also about ways of organizing labor. Uh, um are expanding beyond the factory so that's that's interesting like for instance you know taylorism the idea you can strictly monitor what a worker does uh count their output control their output and control the you know monitor the movements and then use that information to uh, downstream to improve the labor process and uh, make it more efficient Uh, that stuff has been present in factories for um for a century um or almost a century uh it's it's digitized so now digital technologies allow management to extract those kind of data automatically rather than uh sending around managers with you know stop clock and 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 uh um um, yeah so instead, instead of sending around managers with a stop clock you can actually automate this stuff by having technology and algorithms do that for you but the idea is the same uh the the difference is this logic is expanding Beyond factories, so warehousing, but also the gig economy, uh, many many other forms of labor are now strictly monitored, quantified, and then the data taken, you know, generated by this monitoring is used to improve the the efficiency of the system downstream. Um, so this is something Amazon is at the forefront of, uh, outside of manufacturing, outside of factories.
0: So uh, just a couple more questions for you. You write how in its projects for the warehouse of the future, Amazon imagines and desires a workplace where these trends are expanded and where human labor is even more subordinate to machines. So what's worse, Alessandro, being subordinate to machines or being replaced by them?
2: Uh, oh boy, I, will, I, will, I don't know if I have an answer to that. So what, what, it, what it did is I looked at patents that Amazon owns for technology it may develop in the future and introduce in, in the warehouse in the future. So I basically went through uh, hundreds of patents that they own for, for robots and stuff like that. And it's very interesting that they assume that human labor will be present in the warehouse of the future. So while they, have, they, they own patents for drones, um, robots, any sort of automated technology that may uh, replace a worker, they also acknowledge in those very patterns that the workers are still going to be there. Um, so I think it's about displacement. I think it's about changing the ways in which people work, maybe reducing the number of workers or, make, or, or at least making, their, making them more efficient because of these new collaborations with automated technologies like robots and algorithms. But I think they, uh, they know that human labor will be, uh, will, be pre- will be present even in the warehouse of the future. Um, so I think most of the technologies are about humans tending to robots, helping robots, um, algorithms controlling and monitoring even, even more strictly what, what human workers do, and then using that, that information to train robots, for instance. Um, so I think there is, there is certainly an acknowledgment in those patents, in, in the plans that Amazon has for the future, or the desire that Amazon has for the future, uh, that living labor, human labor, will still be there. Uh, maybe not the same kind of labor. Uh, which kind of labor? That's that's a political question. Uh, if you if you leave it to them, uh, then it could be more of the, of the same. If uh, we fight them and uh, and we build worker power, then maybe uh, that future can be discussed uh, uh, by work. Can, can be can be decided by workers too, not only by corporations.
0: One last question for you, Alessandro. We have been speaking with Alessandro Delfonti, author of The Warehouse, Workers and Robots at Amazon. Even if you've read any other books or seen any other documentaries or read articles about Amazon, you should definitely check out Alessandro's books. It, is, it come from a completely different perspective. You can follow Alessandro on Twitter at A. Delphante, and you can find out more about him at Delfonti.org. One last question for you, and as we do with all of our guests I promise, Alessandro. It is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. (laughs) And I think the last category is the one that this is going to fall in. You were just talking about change. Now that Jeff Bezos is gone, he's no longer the CEO of uh, Amazon. He left in 2021. Is there any indication that Amazon will change and not be so bad for their employees in offices as well as in warehouses?
2: uh no not yet i don't know i don't know if 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 if, and i I doubt that this will change because of of like a new person at the helm of the corporation uh so i think that would if 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 amazon were to change that would be as a a result of uh social and political forces the government breaking them down uh workers uh increasing the rate of resistance uh and maybe changing things i don't think it's going to happen because of like some change at the at the uh at the top of the corporation uh for sure
0: Alessandro, I cannot thank you enough for being on our show this week. This is really a fascinating read, and I truly appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you. That was that was great. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Have a good week. Bye.
0: You too. Bye. You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show. Prove us wrong, please. Prove us wrong. This is how. If you, if what you just heard from Alessandro Del on the relentlessness of Amazon. I'm. I'm not kidding. Go to relentless. dot com. It takes you to Amazon. That's what Jeff Bezos wanted to call the company. Relentless. Good lord. If that made you angry, sad, or and somehow enlightened you, or made you realize that yes, this really is, show your support by either becoming a subscriber to our weekly bonus Friday podcast on patreon at patreon.com slash this is hell or go to this is hell.com and click on support and see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener supported this is hell remember without you we got nothing so thanks for your support jess please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our listeners are answering so far
1: this week's question from hell is okay then you come up with a good question from hell okay then you come up with a good question from hell
0: are we getting a lot of responses more than last week <laughs> <laughs> For the entire week In one overnight See Alex you're right back on the horse
1: Yeah and, and now we're generating new ideas too um, Fabio L says Who will rid me of this meddlesome podcast <laughs> <laughs> um, Brad, Bradley R Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of rich white men <laughs> I know <laughs> yeah. uh, Isa R what work will you outsource to the Internet Hive Mind? Okay. <laughs> Michael D., why? <laughs> um, okay, then you come up with a good question from hell. Uh, David R. says, If a question from hell is proposed on Facebook, but no one is around to read it, does it make a sound? <laughs> Dan K., With inflation, approximately how many suckers are currently born every minute? <laughs> um, Todd K. says, The question from hell, WTF, the answer, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) And and the last one for today. Kim G says, What is Hell's Metaverse?
0: (laughs) That's a good one. Kim won the uh, question from Hell last week. So if you're listening right now, Kim, please uh, get in touch with us with your mailing address and tell us which piece of merchandise you want because you won last week. We will have more of your answers at the end of Wednesday's show. I'm going to tell you something about Tuesday's show in just a moment. Again the question from hell is Okay then you come up with a good question from hell The person with our favorite answer wins your choice Of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want You can see all of our stuff at Thisishell.com when you click on support It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous Naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy Sticky, goopy, gloppy Globby, gory, this week in rotten history On November 3rd 1979 Keep that in mind 1979 42 years ago this Wednesday, not 1879, 1979, in Greensboro, North Carolina, several members of the American Nazi Party and the KKK opened fire on an anti-Klan march organized in that town by the Communist Workers' Party, a hardline Maoist group that denounced the Soviet Union for... Pursuing restored capitalism and called homosexuality a bourgeois social sickness masquerading as sexual freedom. So whose side are you on? The Nazi Klan members or the homophobes? Your choice. In previous months, the Maoist group had already been involved in scuffles with right-wingers in North Carolina. Again, a North Carolina Maoist group. And elsewhere in the South. Including one where the communists burned a Confederate flag. So... Too bad they're homophobes, kind of liking their actions so far As Greensboro, where the march took place Is a predominantly black neighborhood People on both sides of the conflict were armed But by most accounts, the Nazis and Klansmen Fired first, as is their wont. They killed five of the anti-Klan protesters And the incident quickly became known as the Greensboro Massacre Apparently Greensboro Gate was taken More than a dozen right-wingers were arrested But all were acquitted after the Jury decided they had fired in self-defense, you know, just like Kyle Rittenhouse. In the years following the massacre, the Maoist group reinvented itself. Yeah. Uh, Changed its name to the New Democratic Movement and came to profess a nonviolent social democratic ideology. Yeah, but what about that homosexuality as a social sickness stuff? In 2020, the Greensboro City Council passed a resolution acknowledging that one of the Klansmen had been a police informant and apologizing for the police department's failure to warn the marchers of the planned right-wing attack on their demonstration that the police knew about. The cops knew the Klansmen were going to attack with violent, if not deadly, force. They knew they were armed, and they didn't do a damn thing about it, only to acquit the killers for acting in self-defense when the police clearly knew it was a provocation. And it's not like this is ancient history in the South. Again, this was only 42 years ago, so I'm wondering what are the odds of Kyle Rittenhouse being acquitted? After all, the court has already determined that the dead cannot be referred to as victims during his trial, which is weird because, by definition, the late Anthony Huber and Joseph Rosenbaum, as well as Gage Grosskreutz—I'm always going to get that guy's last name wrong—who was shot but survived—are all prisoners harmed, injured, or killed as a result of a crime accident, or other event or action, just as the word victim is defined. So I'm betting on acquittal for Rittenhouse, and depending on the odds, I could make a killing. In Rotten History, November 6, 1843, 178 years ago this Saturday, a mutilated corpse was discovered on the grounds of a plantation sugar mill in the Matanzas province of Cuba. It was the remains of Carlotta Lukumi, an enslaved African woman who just days earlier had led one of the major slave slave rebellions in the history of the Caribbean or Caribbean. You know, the kind that is not taught in U.S. schools because it might make white people sad. And you don't want white people to be sad because they learned about a horrible part of white history. Carlotta, as she is known, was born in the Kingdom of Benin in West Africa and was kidnapped and enslaved when she was only 10 years old. Not much more is known of her life, except that in 1843, after working several years on the Triumvirato sugar plantation, she conspired with another enslaved woman, known variously as Fermina and Firminia, to organize a rebellion of enslaved workers from the estate. Some historians believe they were inspired by accounts of the successful slave revolution, which had taken place in neighboring Haiti a few decades earlier. So if you're curious as to why Haiti finds itself today and throughout its history in chaos, it's because Haiti scares the hell out of Whitey. According to traditional accounts, Carlotta coordinated the Triumvirato Rebellion using Yoruba talking drums and personally led the first raid wielding a machete. She and The workers killed the daughter of a white slave boss Sent the plantation owner Running for his life Burned down buildings in which slaves Were routinely tortured From there Carlotta and the rebels Moved on to neighboring plantations And spent the next two days starting fires Destroying crops and killing White people right and left When Spanish colonial troops finally came in To put down the insurrection They killed 56 rebels, wounded 17 And took another 60 prisoner Carlotta and Fermina were among those captured and killed. According to one account, Carlotta was quartered. Her body was ripped apart by four horses, each horse having, being tied to one of her wrists or ankles. But in spite of her death The rebels continued their fight Well into the following year And more recent times The memory of Carlotta Has become part of Cuba's national myth In paintings and statues She is traditionally depicted Waving her bloody machete And she is viewed as a precursor And inspiration for the Colombian Revo- or Colombian, Cuban revolution of the 1950s See? That's the kind of indoctrination The far right fears in the United States If we glorify those who fought for Freedom and liberation from slaveholders What's next? Recognizing indigenous genocide and institutional racism and sexism In the founding documents of the United States Now that's Rotten History And this is Hell Jess, I made an executive decision to take tomorrow Tuesday off because apparently My home is a roach-infested nightmare after spending an entire weekend preparing for an exterminator. If I want to live in a home that in any way resembles a functional space to do things like, you know, sit down in a chair, eat at a table, cook food, or to work in my home office, or my girlfriend to work in hers, I need to put my house back in order. Sure, I could come over here and work in the office here, but this office is almost as bad as my home office. So I'm taking a mental health day tomorrow or else I will lose what little mental health I have going for me. Jess, do we know who's going to be on Wednesday's show, also at 10 a.m. here at ThisIsHell.com?
1: As far as I know, we do not know who will be on Wednesday. <laughs> All right.
0: Well, we'll find out in the next 24 hours, hopefully. But we do know Jeff Dorchin will be delivering a moment of truth. We are still looking for new board operators to join our staff here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Jess and Richard and Alex do, email me at chuckathishell.com if you would like to join us here on This Is Hell. We're looking for people who can run the board anywhere from once a week here at our studio above Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West of on Avenue, which shows with shows beginning at 10 AM generally Wednesday or Monday through Friday. Uh, And and like Alex says, this is not a hard thing to learn. Jess, was it difficult for you to learn the board?
1: No, it takes a few weeks, and then you can do it on your own.
0: Like how much time do you think? Two, three hours you've got it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really easy. I'm not saying that you're not talented. You're a very talented person. (laughs) However, we are very flexible, and if you can only do it a couple of times a month, we can work with your schedule. This is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well. And we actually are now paying our board ops A living wage So if you are interested in joining us here At This Is Hell All you have to do is email me And tell us that you're interested in being a board operator Here on This Is Hell Email me at chuck at com. Thanks to our guest today, Alessandro Delfonti, author of The Warehouse, Workers and Robots at Amazon. Thanks to Jess for running the board. Thanks to Alex for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. This week's hangover cure is don't drink so much that you get a hangover, which is the worst advice you can give anyone who has a hangover. We told you so. This is hell.
1: My demon is on my butt. Uh. My demon talks to me in profanity like a seller, uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank
0: you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.